Hello and welcome to Theoretically Theatrical. In this series, we peek behind the curtain and explore the world of performance. Today, we'll be taking a look at the Corbenic Poetry Path. This is a three-kilometer circular walk with poetry and art all the way along it, a bit like an outdoor gallery where wellies are obligatory. The artists and poets are all from Scotland, and many are local to the area. You're explicitly told at the start of the walk to stay on the path and to respect the privacy of the homes and buildings that happen to be beside the walk. It was a lovely, crisp winter day when we set out. One of our party had been on the walk before, but quickly spotted things that they hadn't noticed before. The first poem we came across was next to some bat boxes. The first person to reach it read it aloud to everyone, and this became the norm for the rest of the walk. Who cares? Who cares how well you walk on metric feet or carry sense down careful stanzas without breaking it? If you can't stop the heart or tune the ear to bat cry, stick to prose by Chris Salt. We laughed and pressed on through the woods and found ourselves walking beside a little stream. At this point we found what looked like a series of stepping stones in a garden bed of gravel. As we got closer we realised that a word was carved onto each of the stones. To read it properly, you had to walk backwards down the path. In all the hurry of our lives, we need so much just now and then to find an island. By Kenneth Stephen. Back into the woods, the path snaked, but not before passing a strange bench with four red stones as backrests. There was a thick, wiggly line of painted pebbles that joined all of the stones together. Not far from this was the next poem. Wild Cherry In a thicket of self-grown grass, dog and red fox fight like lovers. They rake flanks, plant teeth like seeds in each other's gut. Various stems are severed. Next spring, the gene will come wet and sweet, with blossom all pink at the edges. By Nicky Magenis It was around this point in the walk, as we actively searched the landscape for the next installation, that everything started to look like a potential artwork. We spotted an odd style without a fence or wall to climb over, and on closer inspection we noticed that the steps were broken and at strange diagonal angles. Was this artwork? It looked deliberate. But then again, maybe it wasn't. Later we found a stone carving with three metal pipes and a tangle of chicken wire that looked like a steamboat. Some of the poems were disguised to look like nondescript items, like Sally Evans's piece, which was hidden in a log pile. Time has taught the use of silence. Some were more obvious, like Patricia Ace, who had her poem engraved onto a piece of glass that looked exactly like the mountain range that we could now see as we emerged from the trees. The people who settled here, faces etched deep by distant lives, scored by work and weather. We found the next poem by a frozen pond. It was burned into a long vertical plank of wood. Casting. Out here among the call of the geese, the gliding gossip of buzzards, the wind tumbles down the glen, carrying wagtails, the occasional grouse, flustered, fleeing close to the ground. Standing at the lochen, Fruitless casting, no radio, no chat, only walking contemplation. Time enough for the questions to surface from the dark water, and silence enough to answer them. 
There was a bench made of pointed logs to sit on by the pond if you wanted. We pressed on instead. That poem was somewhat ironic, as we were chatting and laughing the whole time. No silence and certainly no deep questions. We found a little pine tree protected from the deer by a metal cage with a laminated poem pinned to it. The Mountain Pine Pinus Mugo It finds strength where others crouch, strong as an oak and noble, reaching slender arms through frosted air, welcoming storms because it can. The next poem was once again carved on separate stones. The text of the first stone was painted silver and gold, and was so flowery that I misread the first word as must rather than mist. Mist, brushes, stalks. Or as I originally read it, must brushes, stalks. (laughs) Beads on every kernel, denim darkened to the knee. By John Plunkett. Margaret Sillies Brown also opted for a stony canvas, but not only did her two-line poem not fill up the whole rock, there was a big gap between the last two words, making it look like it was a censored swear word. But I must. Wait. Wind. The next poem waited just inside the wood and was suspended by strings inside a wooden square which was propped up against the roots of a fallen tree. It was in two parts. The first was handwritten on laminated paper that was made to look weathered, and the second was on a stone at the bottom of the square. The writing was a little difficult to read. All of the F's looked like P's, and on the stone, all the S's looked like I's. After Hurricane Bag, Spruce made a final stand in the full twist and thrash. A deluge of debris batters loose, drums, tin, roofs, litters the land. Straining roots are ripped free, flinging earth into the night, breaking trunks rage. Crowns thump the ground. Then the scream of chainsaws, biting through circled years, swirls of breath and wood chips, flurry in the heady swither. In the morning, calm. Leaves slowly tumble in the brands deep, and light fills the space where trees once stood. The carved writing on the stone repeated the last stanza. We passed several interesting weathered and unmarked artworks. A plank of wood with a letterbox slit cut in the middle with a hole at either end. Five stumps with three ceramic shapes balanced on top, one of which looked like it had little pointy breasts. A wooden post with a resin top and a tangle of thick wire looped loosely around it. One artwork that did have a name attached was Adam Elias's series of ceramic pots, stacked to look like little figures staring at the beautiful view. My favourite poem was Lost in Translation, by John Plunkett. Before you read it, you see Grab the Bull in the opposite wall. For Daniel Murky. When I said you should grab the bull by the horns, I thought you would understand. I never thought you would take it literally as though there's no such thing as a metaphor in Brazil. What made it worse was that you thought I'd said that you should grab the bull by the balls. (coughs) At certain points there were markers with names, but no obvious artwork or poem nearby. I wondered if they had just been taken down or were about to be put up. As you look around, trying to find the artwork, it's as if these artists are somehow placing their signature on the landscape, claiming authorship 
of the trees and the ground and the scent and the view. What, she protests, outraged, palms upturned, what? It's the default response when you've been caught. A spasm, a tie, a nearly neural reflex. But as well, a rune, a charm, a magic word, a key for the gateway to another world where there is no cause and there are no effects. By Tim Turnbull. We pass through a square archway with a poem by Andrew Jackson. New World Order. Running just to feel the wind, shouting just to hear. The poetic instructions to be active were echoed by a climbing wall just past the arch. One creature that really took it to heart was a red squirrel that we spotted, jumping from branch to branch. Maybe it was climbing a Douglas fir, which was the title of the next poem that we found, Sudotsuga Douglasi. This long-lived giant, welcoming the mountain winds, the snow, the mellow light, youthful freshness is undiminished. There were thousand storms and century after century, the primary branches whirl around the axis and stretch like words far into other times. Our next poem was stretched over one horizontal plank of wood that was cut into three jagged pieces. Broken. Once today has gone the way of others and brushwood cinders match the sky. We can call on the lost, our river brothers, to gather nets and watch the ripples die. Once the canvas blanks the weakening light and the wilting rose rejects the final thorn, we can bleach the rainbow's mortuary white and eat stellar crusts until our time is born. Once all the rivers run backwards to slow and treacle soft in the pools of liquid sleep, we can stop to think of what we know, to heal Earth's wounds from running deep. By Geza Salai. Kenneth Stevens' artwork was made of metal twisted into the word hope and standing on five slender wooden posts. From a different angle, the word looked like whore instead of hope. There was another tree poem of a sort. Three stumps of increasing height encircled by moss led to a semicircle of wooden posts with resin squares balanced on the top. The poem was in the resin squares. You had to stand on the last stump to read the poem. Piff in the dell thickened quiet. Every breath was a fog of stillness and spore splicing through my lungs. I do not remember the slow germination of the inner forest. I was only aware. Through the mist-damp earth I sucked up moisture, feeling the draw of nutrients beneath my hardening skin. From fingers, new fingers, reaching and pointing to every dapple of dancing light. As the whole earth hummed, my knuckles broadened to drink pure energy. I was intoxicated by it. Standing here for centuries, absorbing life, rain cleansed, dried by sun warmth, wing beats and wind. The nights were peaceful, rodents nosing around me, the quiet flurry of owls like breath upon me. I learnt not to speak, but to stretch and splay in the moonlight, listening through every surface. Of the division of cells in the soles of my feet, the boosted pressure, burst and pleasure. As new medistem tips rooted through leather and the leaf-mould surfaces growing deep as longing. Only a thin seam of some old self remains, ringed in by years, hidden in my pith.
by John Plunkett. One of our party described this poem as a nasty trick. For them, it was an unpleasant experience to be made to feel somehow responsible for the tree being cut down, by being forced to stand on its severed stump. We moved quickly on and found a delightful red sculpture that looked a bit like origami. Then another burned poem branded into wood. At the top of the plank, there was a hole to look through. We could spot rooftops among the foliage. Fire damp. And yet I believe something must sing in the heart. I once read that when canaries were taken underground, they would sing back towards what little light there was. By John Glenday. The next piece almost looked like a gravestone, or maybe a modern neutered herm. It had a metal-bearded face at the top over the poem. There was a long stripe of dampness stretching from the face to the ground. Locked in the eyes of wisdom is the truth that, without charity, a man is cold bronze. By Eniko Xazi. We trotted quickly past several sculptures without pausing because the weather was getting colder. A sandstone curl, a Celtic knot hanging over a much bigger knot cut into the earth, ceramic squiggles growing out of the earth and leading to a thin wooden arch, a set of wavy dominoes that grew and shrank in size. One that we did pause at was a polished hollow log cut in half and balanced horizontally between two stands. In front was a log with several holes that contained a crude drumstick. We stopped to drum on the log. Next was a metal plaque at the foot of a root ball that had been flipped so that its roots looked like the branches of a tree. Arboreal. The trees are leaving for the sun to gather beams. Another ring surrounds the one, surrounding less a year before. They dig the cradles of their graves for nutrients, and when they're done, fall into them. By Richard Livermore. Then briskly on to two teal beehives with a poem painted in white time. Pure amber light. A wee bit more room, Eck, by Alec Finley. Another wooden block with burned words. This time there was a resin block set into it with one apple pip frozen into it. Blossom. There's this life and no hereafter, I'm sure of that. But still I dither, waiting for my laggard soul to leap from the world's touch. How many maydowns have I slept right through the trees courageous with blossom? Let me number them. I shall be weighed in the balance and found wanting. I shall measure less than an apple pip. By Kathleen Jamie. The last stretch of the walk took us past a river, and the poems and artwork seem to reflect that. The river. This is my formula for the fall of things. We come to a river we always knew we'd have to cross. It ferries the twilight down through fieldworks of corn and half-blown sunflowers. The only sounds, one lost cicada calling to itself, and the piping of a bird that will never have a name. Now tell me there is a pause, where we know there should be an end. Then tell me you too imagined it this way, with our shadows never quite touching the river, and the river never quite reaching the sea by John Glenday.
We reached the end of the walk, but not before climbing an unexpected flight of stairs that winded most of us. The last poem looked like a sign signalling the end of our journey. It was a grey-green stone with a triangle carved into it, with an arrow at the top. Where are we really going? Always home. I would urge anyone who's near enough to go on this walk. It truly is a unique experience where artists attempt to convey their feelings and thoughts about the landscape in the landscape. I've deliberately left out several of the poems and artworks so that you have an incentive to visit. My readings cannot capture the beauty of the landscape or the variety of emotions that come up when you read them, ranging from thoughtful analysis to laugh-out-loud humour. You can visit their website at thecorbenicpoetrypath.com. They've got a book for sale and more information about the artists and authors. I'll leave a link to that down in the description. So what are you waiting for? Get your wellies on and find your coziest scarf and get out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or have a subject that you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio Production.